The Leftovers Season 2, Episode 7, A Most Powerful Adversary, is over. But we're just getting started here at Post Show Recaps. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good day, wherever you are, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Leftovers podcast. I am Antonio Mazzaro, and I'm usually joined at this point uh, with Round Howard, uh, that is Josh Wiggler. Josh had to be called away on an emergency trip to Cairo. I, he, he was very unclear about the details of this trip but thankfully i've got a great uh, world explainer in his place someone who knows about seeing the world through different lenses and who hopefully can help us break down this incredible episode of the leftovers i'm talking about espn's aj mass aj how are you i'm good are we sure that this wasn't a second departure event here uh, oh my we- gosh josh could be gone he could be lifted M- maybe Oh, no, this could be bad. He has tweeted. He has tweeted since he's been gone. So hopefully that means he has not departed. He's not a deep. He's not been lifted. That would be terrible. Oh, OK. He's he's hiding out with Mark Lynn Baker. I got you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he is. Uh, he is not representing himself to have been departed. So <laughs> hopefully we're OK on that. But yeah, AJ, I'm so happy to have you here. If you don't know AJ, he's podcasted with us at Post Show Recaps a lot. He also writes at ESPN.com. He is an author of two books, including Yes, It's Hot in Here and How Fantasy Sports Explains the World. I'm, I'm, we're not going to get into this, AJ, but there's probably some fantasy sports explains the world kind of metaphors for this show, The Leftovers. Some, I, I think some people are trying to play Captain Loophole this week uh, and trying to you know cheat death or get away with a few things here. So I do think that that's interesting. It's a great book uh, that breaks down kind of how to look at certain groups and dynamics of people uh, through particular lenses. And I think this show specifically is is all about the lenses that we choose to see the world through. Uh, and I think we're seeing that really begin to play out in almost every interaction that we have. So it's fascinating to me uh, that, that, you know, you can look at this show from one point of view or you can look at it from another and how you choose to interpret the evidence in your point of view make, may, may make you totally convinced that this is a spiritual show and then you may come away totally convinced that it's a scientific show. And we have that great Lindelof debate of man of science versus man of faith. Uh, where are you, AJ, on this season of The Leftovers in general? Are you as satisfied as Josh and I have been? Oh, absolutely. I have been all in uh the only you know the first obviously the first scene of the first episode when we were in the uh prehistoric time and like what is going on uh i had a little bit of hesitation at that point scratching my head (laughs) and then you know then the theme song is different i'm like okay what the heck is going on but once they started diving into the season um you know now i'm singing along with uh (laughs) with iris yeah yeah i'm singing along and i'm no every episode has just been just as good as the last it's been phenomenal ride and i I certainly uh considering uh certain shows the i did the walking dead uh podcast with alex kidwell talking about that this week and how that show kind of just grinded to a halt and nothing's going on uh you certainly cannot say the same for the leftovers this episode was eventful to say the least yes eventful to say the least is correct and we did we got a lot of feedback tweeted at us aj is at aj mass on twitter i am at ac mazzaro with two z's one r uh we had a lot of questions sent and we're very thankful for that a lot of people talking about this episode If you're not familiar with what we do here on Post Show Recaps, you can subscribe to our Leftovers Only podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about the leftovers. After every episode, you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes. 
for that feed. You can also subscribe to our general feed where we do talk about things like AJ's talking about, like The Walking Dead, uh, Once Upon a Time, uh, other shows like that on a weekly basis. That feed is just postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. And AJ, I understand that you've started a new podcast called The Dropship, which is about The 100. Yeah, Dropship the 100 podcast. I'm doing that with uh, Joe Garfine. It'll be uh, talking about the CW show The 100, which is the first two seasons are available on Netflix uh, to stream and get through. Uh, Season three will be starting up in the new year. Uh, You can find that. We'll be tweeting about that, both me and Joe. Uh, We just recorded our first episode of that, and it'll be available on SciFiMafia.com and iTunes and all those uh, good places. Excellent. Yeah, the uh, AJ and Joe are both veterans of our Lost Lives podcast here at Post Show Recaps, the podcast where we really kind of try to resurrect, if you will, uh, the memory and themes of Lost and talk about our favorite episodes, characters, etc. And I think what's interesting about that is we are trending pretty heavily with this episode specifically into some of the classic kind of Lost debates. Uh, and I don't think we can, especially you and I, and, and Josh would be involved as well, I don't think we can talk about this episode without really talking about the science-faith dichotomy, uh, which is certainly present throughout history, but really comes to bear uh, in the context of Lost uh, with a lot of the debates that are going on. To me, as we've been talking about on this podcast, AJ, I know you listen to what we do. Uh, I think this science versus faith dichotomy and this debate that goes on Uh, These two lenses that we might choose to interpret events. I think this is at the forefront of almost everything in the leftovers that we've already talked about. And it certainly is at the forefront of this episode. Um, And I'm I'm just wondering if you feel like the show is purposefully being not not planning a flag on one side or the other and letting us determine which lens we choose to interpret the events from. Or do you feel like they're leading us in one particular direction? Well, I think that there's definitely, for up until this point, leaving it open to where it can go either way. I, I think once you start getting into the resolution of, of what happened at the end of this episode, I think you might, uh, you know, you have to keep it where it's amb- ambiguous. If you suddenly have something happen that can be on one side or the other with, with what happens with Kevin, I think that's going to be the tipping point. But up until now, I think they've played the balance very well. I mean, we're talking about a world where people completely vanished. Um, that's something that doesn't happen in our world. So if, you know, if you're in our world trying to debate, well, is there a God and, you know, is there a supernatural something out there? There isn't any evidence to support that. It has to be faith-based. But when you suddenly put this great departure into reality in that reality, suddenly the evidence, you know, whether this certainly doesn't prove that one religion is right over another, but it certainly points to something that is, is supernatural going yeah. on. Yeah. And, and I think to me, what really epitomized that was in uh, last week in Lens's, uh, the Lens episode where Nora gets that phone call, uh, having been through the Great Departure, having witnessed it herself, her whole family just vanishes. And, you know, when they said, well, we think it's, we think it's a demon. And she laughs like, oh, come on. Now that's ridiculous. I'm like, Really? I think in this world of the leftovers, you have to at least consider it as a possibility uh, because all bets are kind of off at this point, and you can't just poo-poo magic and unsupported evidence as much as you could before such an event. Yeah, it is interesting because that there there are a lot of. I mean, Lori has a great kind of, and we won't jump around. We'll we'll try to go scene by scene here, but in in terms of this kind of overarching view of uh, the series, the season, this episode. 
there, Lori has that great line about how when there's this great emotional pain, uh, when the mind is in emotional distress, it will grasp at any context that makes it feel better. We're all susceptible to false belief. She talks about the stuff that she and Tommy did. Uh, she says the brains would sooner embrace magic than deal with fear and abandonment and guilt and all of that. And I do think you're right about how the departure itself created all those feelings. And I think a lot of people were searching for answers. That's why things like the guilty remnant can happen, as Lori points out. But I think that it, when you mentioned that first scene that doesn't really the first scene of the season that doesn't necessarily make t- sense in context, Josh and I have talked about that scene a lot and how to that woman uh, who suffered through that earthquake, that would have been just as spiritual and magical an event uh, as the departure was to the people in the modern era. And that with greater science and greater understanding of the actual scientific world, we know that that event makes more sense. But to that woman, of course, it doesn't. And I think that we may be there a little bit with what's happening with the departure and lenses. I think the lens episode really points some of that out with scientific theory being developed about, you know, things that start to make a little bit of sense, uh, things that we don't perceive with the naked eye, like fields and magnetic issues and resonance and things that we do know and believe exist, but we don't perceive with the naked eye and people trying to turn those sorts of things into an interpretation of the event and articles being published in popular scientific uh, journals. So I think that we're in we're in the point where science is starting to play in. We saw the MIT people purchasing Nora's house for scientific reasons. It's starting to play in even to the departure a little more. And the people in that world are getting a greater understanding of the departure. So I think there's this great debate right now about the leftovers going on online and across kind of what everyone talks about is whether the show has really firmly planted any kind of flags about the paranormal or the spiritual. And I think most people, including myself, tend to come down on the side that you've come down on, which is other than the departure, uh, no, not really. Everything else could be one way or the other. But I think even the departure is being subject to the sort of scientific method, scientific analysis, testing, that sort of thing now, uh, now that we're several years out. And I think that's an interesting thing about the show is that over time, even the most paranormal, supernatural, whatever you want to call it, event that's happened in the context of the show, uh, we're starting to chip away at it with science. So I think that's fascinating because here Kevin is dead. It certainly seems like Kevin is dead. I mean, this is this. We've got Damon Lindelof, uh, famous for sometimes killing characters and having them show back up, famous for asking questions that sometimes don't get answered, famous for playing coy. He's not on Twitter anymore, but he did tell Alan Sepinwall at HitFix that you will see Kevin or parts of Kevin, possibly memories of Kevin, Kevin's jogging pants, maybe another character named Kevin, an adolescent game entitled Seven Minutes in Kevin, and or, but not necessarily literally, the actual Kevin again and soon. Hashtag Glenn lives, a little dig at the walking dead. I'm wondering, AJ, where do you think we go with this? I have a, a theory of my own, but I'm curious about where you think Kevin's journey goes next uh, with three episodes left and how you see this playing out. Well, I mean, you didn't see there was a dumpster in the room and you just rolled under there. So I think you'll, you'll be fine. I, did, I saw a bunch of guts on the ground, but maybe those weren't his. Um, <laughs> was, that, was there a Nicholas in there? I don't know. Yeah, I I think we will see Kevin again. And I, I don't think he's dead uh, in terms of just this. I don't think his story is over. But because, you know, Patty is dead and we've seen Patty. It's just a question of what form does it take? Um, my fear, my fear is that um, Michael's going to be dragging Kevin off and burying him somewhere, and then in three days he's going to just 
pop on out. We're going to get the kind of Jesus allegory parable thing going on there. And I'm not sure that that makes sense to me in the universe that they've set up uh, because the birds that have been buried were alive. They just stayed alive. It wasn't right. they were dead and they came back to life. So right. I don't think that jives. And I've, heard, I, I've seen some people thinking that's what's going to happen. Uh, I would not be surprised if that happened, but they would have a lot of explaining to do. Uh, <laughs> the, the other thing that I've kind of... Uh, uh, heard is uh, floated out there is that uh you know kevin's now going to go on this journey to the afterlife uh and and battle his adversary patty and and virgil shot himself in order for him to come along for the ride with him uh kind of is a, a dante's inferno kind of thing um i would be okay with that because at least that would make some sort of narrative sense i'm not sure how how you could come back from that from a point of view sort of thing, you know, unless Kevin's not dead. Uh, So, you know, was it poison? Was it just a temporary poison? You know, was it a diluted poison? I'm not entirely sure where they're going to go for this. Uh, But the fact that Michael showed up and dragged his body away seems to me uh, to lend credence to the idea that, that he's not, dead and gone he may be dead but he's not dead and gone yeah i think i I do think it's interesting because i think that the show could go in any number of directions as you've stated and i think that the we we mentioned this connection on the podcast before but the virgil dante's inferno connection is is at least there on the surface virgil uh the great kind of poet uh from ancient times is dante's guide through the underworld in the inferno uh, and we hear about adversaries in this episode and people that need to do battle with their adversaries and going down into a different world. And all of that is really wrapped up in the sort of Joseph Campbell kind of hero myth that we hear throughout kind of our stories uh, all over history. And so it would not be in any way not in keeping for this to happen with Kevin, for him to have some sort of event where he does descend into some realm and reemerges as a changed man and maybe even meets with a goddess or something like that. I mean, those sorts of things are pretty common in our stories. The leftovers, especially this season is a story that touches on the kind of cultural myths and religions that have developed in our societies over time. They have Reza Aslan on the staff advising them at the beginning of the season. I think he was giving too many answers away, AJ, because they shut him down. <laughs> he was doing great interviews with Vulture, but he was talking about these sorts of things and I should say that, I, I mean, I know uh, there, there are substances that people take as part of some of these cultural rituals or religious rituals, if you were. I believe the proper term for them is uh, entheogens. And they're like things like mescaline or peyote uh, or mushrooms or ayahuasca or things like that, that uh, can put you into a different, completely different state. Uh, and from there, you can have these vision quests or spiritual journeys, these uh, shamanic kind of things that happen. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if what you're saying is true, if maybe this isn't really a super poison. We, we, look, we didn't see Kevin's heart actually stop. Nobody took his pulse. We didn't see that he flatlined on a meter. So we don't know that he actually died. We only know what Virgil told him, which is that this is going to shut your central nervous system down. It's going to be like a heroin overdose. I'm going to give you this shot to wake your heart back up. But uh, uh, and ultimately, he doesn't give it to him. But we also know that Michael was arguing with Virgil right before Kevin showed up. And Michael seems sort of resigned to it. And when Michael walks back in and sees the scene, it isn't like the most tragic thing he's ever seen. He kind of just is like, oh, my gosh, this happened. And he goes right to work 
dragging Kevin out of there. So it does seem like he maybe has a plan and it seems to me like perfectly in keeping with the structure of this season that what we could see is next episode. We'll see a non Kevin point of view episode, uh, maybe a, a Nora point of view, maybe a John Murphy point of view, but we'll see a different, maybe a Michael point of view. We'll see a different character point of view episode uh, and Kevin will be in that episode and, and we'll see kind of the back end of what's happening with Kevin. Maybe he'll stir a little bit or something. But I think episode nine is shaping up to be, as it was last year, a major episode in this series. And I think episode nine is the episode where we could see Kevin's sort of spiritual journey, if you will. Uh, yes. And yeah, several, could be, could several be, things on that. Yeah, go I, ahead. I think. I, I think that much like much like we want to know what happened to Glenn on Walking Dead and they kind of went away for a couple episodes, I think we're going to see something similar here where we're probably I would I would think that we're the one person who's not yet in town is is Tommy. So I think we're going to probably focus on Tommy a little bit uh, to get him into town and okay. see where he's been. And then once all the Garveys are back together, uh, sans Kevin, uh, <laughs> then we can see what happened with Kevin. I think the. The danger here is is reading too much into it. You know, all that was on the screen is what was, was on the screen. Um, if we're going to start pulling into all these theories based on outside sources, be it Dante's Inferno, be it the fact that, you know, Michael came in and dragged him off because the Archangel Michael is the angel of death who carries the souls to heaven. Well, that doesn't mean he's dead. Right. Uh, but you, you could certainly make that interpretation based on source material that you bring to it. We all bring our, our different source material. Heck, you know, how, ma- how many times have we heard the Pixies Where Is My Mind? If we're going to just go to a different Pixies song, you know, if, if the man is five, Kevin, five letters, <laughs> then the devil is six, Virgil, six letters, and if the devil is six, then God is seven, Michael. This Garvey's gone to heaven. Oh I mean, I, I could totally go that route if I want to. <laughs> AJ, you're a debaser through and through. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, we, you know, we, we all bring our own different biases to, to these things. And, and really, all we know is what we saw. Yeah. And anything else is conjecture at this point. And those of you who wanted to go a certain direction, uh, you know, I'm just along for the ride at this point because it's, it's been a wonderful ride thus far. I, I think to me, the bigger question is, is why he drank the cup in the first place. That to me is is the question because knowing that state of mind uh, from him, and you know even what what Kevin said before he drank it, it was like you know I'm listen- my father said he listened to vo- to the voices and did what they told wanted him to do, uh, and then they went away. Uh, and Patty's sitting there singing, "Don't drink it, don't drink it, don't drink it." So he's not listening to the voices. So what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it is fascinating, right? Because Kevin is sort of at the end of his rope, uh, perhaps quite literally, considering he did tie a rope to himself. Uh, and he's he's looking for answers. You'd have to be pretty desperate, I think, to stumble into what has got to be among the weirdest trailers that I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of trailers. Uh, this one is filled with more light bulbs than I think that I thought was possible. Um, I think that that the set design of this trailer is great, but you 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 got to put yourself in a pretty weird frame of mind to be open to this at all. Uh, and when he kind of storms away the first time, when when it's introduced to him as an idea, uh, the first time that we see it, not the first time apparently that it happened, he throws Michael's bike on the ground. He's angry about it. He doesn't seem to be embracing it. Um, but here he comes back and he he's into it. So you're right. I think his frame of mind is important. And, and he is the kind of where is my mind kind of guy who is a little bit lost. And I also totally agree with you that you can read this kind of any number of ways. And I think that really is the central kind of point that we've talked about on this podcast uh, in general and on this podcast specifically, uh, this episode here, 
which is that you could choose to interpret the events through the lens where you're looking at it from maybe, let's say, a magical standpoint or some kind of standpoint that you're along for the ride because maybe it's supernatural and you're just going to see what the show's rules are for that or what rules it's establishing. Or you can be purely scientific about it and say, look, the potion did some things to his body. It wasn't super poison. There were some drugs in it. They're going to send him on this kind of crazy underworld quest when he emerges he won't have actually gone to the underworld he'll have been on like a psychedelic trip uh that will hopefully provide him some clarity uh and that many others and including people in spiritual context have cited as a, a reasoning for their clarity uh whether it's transcendental or otherwise so i think it will be fascinating to kind of look at what that happened what i will say and this is, you know, AJ, I like to plant flags. <laughs> I think that we will see what happened to the girls from Kevin's point of view. I think he was in the area enough that he probably will. There'll be some kind of new evidence that comes to light once Kevin is able to kind of tra travel back to where he goes when he's away. Uh, to the extent that this this kind of psychotic break uh, has removed things from his mind, we know that he's at least been present enough to carry on conversations with people to do things that he's not sure about. And sometimes we might have to have seen some of those events through someone else's eyes in season one. It was Dean who Josh and I called the BBA, the big bald asshole who, when they went upstate New York and to Cairo, Dean is telling him, you did this, this happened. We did that. Um, we don't really have that for that night. We have Patty telling Kevin what happened and Patty, you know, you come down on either side of this, either Patty is a ghost or she's just this, inner manifestation of Kevin's psychosis uh, or psychotic issues. And, and so maybe Patty can tell him things, but it's interesting that Patty hasn't told him what happened then. And maybe some of this stuff is related to the fact that Kevin witnessed something horrible with the girls. I have no idea. I will just say that I think that if we get an episode where Kevin is distant, this may be a way that we get some information about what happened with those girls as Kevin was at the site pretty much uh, right around a time when the earthquake occurred. And if that wasn't at all related to the girls, or there's something else in play there, I think we have the opportunity to see some more evidence about this through Kevin's eyes. And it may ultimately be his saving grace with John because he's in some pretty big trouble with that handprint. I think AJ. Yeah, that was a um, bad move, Kevin, bad move. Uh, <laughs> that, I think that is kind of also what's going on here in, in his head is, is that he knows he's caught and whether he knows he's caught because Patty told him, uh, and pointed it out, or if Patty is a manifestation of his own fears and doubts and told him for that reason. Either way, he knows he's caught and he's got really nothing to lose um, by going and taking the drink and, 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 and going on this death journey at this point because he's, he's, he's dead anyway in his mind. I mean, he, he's... he's yeah, Nora's gone. Nora's gone. Yeah, and and even even the phone call with Nora when when he says you know if 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 I you know if I can make you believe that I I don't see her anymore and I you know I wouldn't lie to you and you, if I can make you believe that would you take me back and and just having that that that's his last bit of hope uh, that pushes him to to go through with this ridiculous ridiculous plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's true, and I think that. I think we can't account for the fact that he he seems to have been worried about Jill. Like ultimately, he'd be willing to kind of do whatever. But he says, "I'm a parent. I have responsibilities." He's worried about Jill. But when Lori comes into the picture and he's able to kind of get her to uh, stand in and to be the most awkward and uncomfortable, let's say, babysitter of all time, uh, then 
I think that I think that he's willing to go on that that quest because at that point he really does have nothing left to lose. It is interesting because the episode, of course, begins with Kevin waking up and Nora being gone uh, and Patty kind of recounting a story about when her husband Neil left and Jill finding the letter and Jill being upset and Kevin not not being handcuffed. Uh, we had a question uh, tweeted at us from Noah and Noah wanted to know, why did Nora run now? Do you think it's actually about Kevin? Because other stuff happened last week, too. And I'm wondering, AJ, we, I talk about how Nora Durst is my all-time ride or die on these episodes. I'm not, I'm not wavering from that, from that at this point, but I'm curious as to what your take is on, on where Nora's at, uh, not necessarily specifically where she is located, uh, but what's in her mind? Why, is she, why did she run? Why did she take Lily? What's going on there? Well, I mean, at the end of the, the scene where he tells her that he's seeing Patty and yeah, I, I, I was with you guys like, uh, could you not say I'm seeing someone? <laughs> could <laughs> yeah. you just say for, exactly? I mean, that was like, a, but I think it is what was, uh, also cool about that was that not for one second did Nora think he meant I'm seeing someone. <laughs> yeah. She immediately, she, she's, aware that he's been talking to even at some subconscious level she was aware that he was not talking to someone so when he says i'm seeing someone i think her first reaction was oh yeah <laughs> of yeah. course you are yeah i mean he doesn't I, when he repeats himself he does he just says the same sentence again uh, and she's totally on board so yeah i don't think she's super worried about that but she's worried about something right because she does take off yeah i think for her it was more the who he was seeing rather than the that he was seeing. I think she was fine to, to deal with any kind of crazy. Um, but the fact that it was, it was Patty and, and the guilty remnant and the horrible things that the guilty remnant did to her to make her re- uh, remind herself of her family with the bringing those dummies and putting them back in and making her remember, I think she doesn't want to remember. And as long as he's talking to the one thing that makes her remember, um, I think she's going to get the heck out of there until he's straight. And, and I think she also knows him well enough to know that he's going to take care of it because I think she does love him. And I, uh, to the extent that she's able to. And I think that she believes that he loves her as well. When he's saying, I love you, Nora, and I need you, Nora, I think she believes him. I, I think she's trying to push him to, to kind of get over it. Yeah, she's, I, think, I'm, I think so. I think, I so. think her being there is not going to help. I, he, he needs to have everything taken away in order to come to the realization of who he really is, much in the same way she didn't recognize her true self until her family was taken away. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of where she's going with that. To me, what was the most interesting thing about that is that, uh, yeah, this is kind of the end, but it, it's important because you know, she had left a sign for him on the chair. Uh, and he doesn't see it because Patty's sitting in the chair. And I just thought that was kind of very apropos that, you know, he's so caught up inside his own head talking to Patty that he literally does not see the signs that Nora has been giving him that she's going to leave. <laughs> yeah, it's a good call. That's a good call. And, and I think that was just, just a fantastic way of, 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 you know, showing that to the audience that he, she, she, He's literally not seeing the signs. Yeah, right? he's literally not seeing the signs. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I think, I, I think too, when you said that her being there is not helping him, I also think we have to keep in mind Nora's coming back into that scene at the end of last week's episode from that great scene with Erica where a lot has been exposed about how close to the surface Nora really does keep her own guilt and her own fears. And she hasn't had time to process that. And I think that there's a there's a certain element of her leaving, too, 
where I think she might be a little worried that she's the one causing Kevin uh, to be like this. If you'll recall, it started uh, as Kevin tells, you know, as Kevin tells Nora at some point, it started when they picked up Lily. Basically, when Nora came into his life and she was about to leave, she was giving him the Dear Kevin letter, uh, was going to put it on his doorstep, and then Lily was there, and she was taking a little bit of back, and then she went all in with the Kevin Garvey family at that point. And until then, she wasn't all in with him. And that is when it started. Well, I can understand why Nora might feel like she's partially responsible for this in light of the fact that she's feeling like she might be partially responsible for other people departing, like her family, like Evie and the other girls, uh, and so and things like that. So I think that there's some element of that to it, too, um, that Nora Durst is not coming into this, this steely kind of uh, not susceptible to her own insecurities or fears uh, and how they may manifest with others. So I think that's part of it, too, uh, to answer Noah's question. Um, but... I, or Noah's question, I should say. But I do think that that's interesting, uh, that, you know, she's literally leaving him signs and he's not seeing them. Uh, and I think that that's part of it. She's somebody who says, like, I can help you. I can deal with the crazy. And then she, she runs when he, he tells her the crazy. So it doesn't seem consistent on the surface, but I think you're right. I think there's some element of you need to deal with this yourself. And there's some element of I could hurt you. Uh, and we need to figure this out. So, you know, I was uh, just, Listening to you talk just there, it just occurred to me that, you know, you had said, like, where is Nora's headspace, but where is physically Nora? I mean, if Nora has taken uh, Lily and, and Mary out of the town, right, and we've, we've seen that this town has kind of a, uh, a land of the lost closed universe, the only number of the people who can right. be in the town come in, come out kind of thing. Well, if she took, if, if the three of them actually left town and, you know, one, one wife leaves, suddenly one wife arrives. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that leaves two, two, two more, you know, two more spaces. And then Kevin offs himself and, and Virgil offs himself. That would be four, but there were only three girls missing. So maybe Kevin is alive and the three girls come back. Now the, there's an opening for the three girls to come back. That's interesting if, because I had thought about the math as well. And I thought it was a one-to-one -one thing. I thought, well, Lori comes in, Virgil dies. Pretty simple. Like Nora's in the town somewhere. Maybe she's staying at the church where Matt and Mary had previously lived. That Which would make be, sense. Yeah. That, yeah, that seems the most likely place. But she could really be anywhere. She could be outside the town, as you point out. We don't know. But if she's inside the town, then Lori comes in. Somebody from Miracle's got to go if the, number, if the numbers theory holds true. But only one person. So that's Virgil, uh, which would, I think, support the fact that Kevin isn't dead. But let's say she does leave the town. Then we get into a different math equation altogether. AJ, I was told there would be no math. <laughs> the numbers are bad. Yes, we can't get into the numbers. The, the, don't, you know, don't push the button. The button is bad. We don't want to deal with the numbers. But I think that that is interesting. I think that we've, we've talked about the miracle math. I think that there's a good possibility here that we've got a one-to-one -one scenario if Nora's still in the town where Lori comes in and Virgil leaves, and that's that. Uh, and so if we look at it from that, we, we only know a one person who came in this episode, and we did have one person, I think, with brains on the wall, very clearly, not just <laughs> mostly dead, but all dead. I think we need to go through his pockets and look for loose change. Liar! <laughs> I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. Yeah, I think that we're in that place. I think we're all dead. Um, so with Virgil, so we're got a, we got a good one to one going on there. Um, but yeah, this is a uh, Kevin is is not. I don't think Kevin knows about the miracle math. Kevin is trying to call Nora, you know, a lot at the beginning of this episode and figure it out. We get an interesting shot. I don't know if we'd seen this before. Kevin's got a tattoo of scissors on his wrist. 
uh, I, I, we had a, you know, we had a question about that um, from that was tweeted at us. But I'm wondering uh, that was from Kristen Hassler. But um, do you know any about, anything about this tattoo or do you have any thoughts about this tattoo on his wrist? The open scissors right in a place where you, you know, you, you don't like to see any kind of cut related things. No, you know, uh, I, I hadn't noticed it before this episode, certainly. Um, I, I'm not sure if, if he, so, this is something else he did on, uh, on the sleepwalking journey, oh if gosh. it is just a manifestation of himself, kind of like symbolic of, hey, you know, when you commit suicide, you, you got a cut right there, and that's kind of telling him to go ahead and do it. Uh, you know, quite frankly, as long as he doesn't show up uh, and meet Bai Ling, <laughs> to get the tattoo, I'll be okay with it. <laughs> Whatever explanation they want to give me. Um, yeah, we, we can't go an entire podcast without more and more loss. I know, no, but you're right. We, we, especially if we're talking about where characters get tattoos, I think it is representative of what you were saying. I think that it's Kevin lives a little bit on the wild side and he's a little bit of an edgy guy. He's, you know, he's listening to the Pixies and he's not, he's not your kind of uh, your standard police officer. He's got a lot of tattoos. We know. Um, he seems like he, he maybe is a little rougher around the edges, uh, maybe like he used to uh, front uh, kind of a punk band or something uh, back when he was like a teenager, or early 20s or something. But yeah, it is an interesting tattoo, uh, especially considering that he sort of does kill himself in this episode, uh, maybe willfully and maybe with the belief that he'll come back and saying that he doesn't want to die, but he does kill himself. So I think that that's uh, I think that that's interesting uh, coming from that. It is also interesting to see Kevin kind of through a different set of eyes. This episode is Kevin's uh, is a Kevin point of view episode. Um, almost all the scenes are from Kevin's point of view. It's interesting to me that we have the scene in the church with Jill and Michael here uh, that is not from Kevin's point of view. Kevin is not a witness. He's not there. Unlike the scene in the house with Lori uh, and Jill, uh, where Kevin is at the scene, he's present. He's not at the church or anywhere near it. This is two separate characters. Yes, they're talking about Kevin, uh, but it is not a point of view scene that this is the scene. I think really the most important thing about it is Jill kind of lets it slip to Michael that Kevin sleepwalks and Michael's like, Oh, he sleepwalks. So Michael clearly, even in this scene, I think knows a little bit more about Kevin than he's previously let on. And I'm sure we, as we've come to find out from this episode, it's because Michael's been talking to Virgil about Kevin and Michael knows more about what Kevin does when he sleepwalks than even Kevin has. But uh, anything else about the scene, that big banner in the background says, and they both went down into the water. We've seen this in another episode, but I think it's it's fascinating to have that particular verse singled out uh, and and prominent in the background here when Jill and Michael are talking about how they don't have sex. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was an interesting scene. I think in some ways it was, you know, petulant Jill coming back. Uh, I thought we had gotten rid of her and, and yeah left her in mapleton right With left her in mapleton uh, although you know i i think in some ways it, it shows how uh the, the, the kind of the storyline that was left hanging in mapleton once now that they've left is that you know obviously the teens there were in such a state that they were you know using these apps to to choke each other yeah, and, I choke, you know, yeah. yeah and, and all that stuff um you know now she sees what it's like for someone who grew up with with like a, a more normal uh, childhood, <laughs> where no one departed, right? Where no one departed, like it's like it's not even so much that he's religious. It's just he's it, like no, it's not the religious thing. It's like I don't know you. <laughs> I don't not sure if I love you. Like that's that should be what and, and like that's just a point of view that's so alien to her. Uh, so you can take all the mysticism out of it, and, and uh, you know whether or not it's you know what, is it blasphemy to curse in a church? Like let's not have that argument. He's just like. 
I don't know if I love you. Isn't that important? And, and that's such an alien concept to her as well. I think that's uh, what I took away is the fascinating uh, part of it, that she's seeing a point of view that she hasn't seen before because her, you know, this world, those kind of points of views didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, it's true. And I think that that is, that is a, that's a really good kind of character note about Jill. I think you talk about points of view. We also have a line in this scene where Michael kind of talks about how I talk to somebody who's not there. Like, uh, am I crazy? You know, like just because somebody talks to somebody that's not there, doesn't mean that they're crazy. And so yet again, we have this sort of presentation about how you can look at two worldviews or, or two events uh, and see them through totally different eyes. The person who's standing on the top of a tower can be a madman or he can be a prophet. And it's really about how you choose to interpret the actions of that person. And so Michael and Kevin both talk to somebody who's not there. In Michael's case, it's totally believed that it's acceptable because people talk to God all the time and, you know, sure, God's not there, but that's a thing that we do and that's fine. But when you talk to somebody that you're seeing and you claim you're seeing a spirit or you're seeing something from the afterlife, then oh, that's a bridge too far. Uh, and I just think that that's an interesting kind of thing that, that you know, we can look at th things through different eyes and through different lenses and see them different ways. And I do think that this show is constantly presenting these opportunities to us for every scientific American or popular mechanics article uh, that talks about lensing. There's somebody who takes that article one step further and talks about demons. And I think that that is uh, that's kind of not only the world they live in, but it's also the world we live in where science and faith and religion kind of intersect and sometimes they don't maybe it's intelligent design maybe there was no hand that was moving things and so i think that that is a debate that not only resonates throughout other shows of course this was a very prevalent debate on lost as well but it, it it resonates throughout our culture and our history and i think that the leftovers is doing a really fantastic job of highlighting all those things um and and it's just about really your perspective um i don't know if you have any other thoughts on that but uh, speaking of perspective, and, and again, these same kind of things, the next scene in the hardware store, the, the man and his grandson or whoever that the child is to him are kind of looking at these cards and trying to learn a language. And Patty knows what is on the back of the card in an almost Ghostbusters-esque fashion uh, with some wavy lines. She knows it's a duck. Uh, do you think that that is proof? I think some people are saying that this is proof that Patty is is actually real, that she's not a manifestation of Kevin did you did you read anything into this this card scene at all? No, I, I actually di didn't read anything into it because I mean, at first I, I did actually uh, get the Ghostbusters vibe from that as well. It's interesting. Um, no, I didn't because you know we're not. You know, was there a mirror in the back that maybe he Kevin saw? It? Like you you know you, we're seeing Kevin's point of view, but he's a he's an unreliable narrator. I mean, he was seeing things in season one. Uh, that weren't there right. and clearly weren't there. So just because that's what Patty's saying to him, we don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's true because like I said, you, you don't know if he saw something about the reflective service. Maybe Kevin knows the language that they were, they were talking. Yeah. And he's a cop, so he's observant. And I mean, if there's an opportunity for him to observe any angle on that card, it's likely that Kevin probably took a look at it. Maybe it didn't even register to him and it registered and, subconsciously and that's the subconscious saying it. Right. So, right. And, and you know, maybe the kid's not holding the car just right. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, it you doesn't know, prove I, anything for me. I'm glad we're on the same page. I, I do. I do like the fact that it was a duck, uh, because you know, well, you call a duck, a duck, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it kind <laughs> of like, it's again, it's this, this kind of like, uh, this trail of breadcrumbs that probably leads nowhere because they, they know they can play with us. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. 
And and I think that that speaking of you know that I think we've got the, one of the best in this show kind of manifestations of that when Patty tells Kevin like I'm glad you asked what you need to do and she gives him this great story about the the wishing cup uh, the cup found in King Tut's tomb. Uh, and she says, oh, you know, you got to go to Cairo uh, and you have to do this kind of uh, gross ritual. It sounds like there's obviously religious overtones there and we can get into the specifics. But there are a lot of cultural myths or religions that have the sort of drinking your own seed, spreading your own seed kind of thing that are part of their creation myths and otherwise. Uh, and so that is the obvious kind of like 1000 foot view of what's going on. But on the 10 foot level, it's also Patty just screwing with Kevin. And it's the show knowing that the show can do that. The show can introduce something like this. That is, uh, oh, this is a crazy story. I'm going to look up everything about the Lotus Chalice or the Wishing Cup or whatever it's called. And I want to go into the religious background or history. Or you know what? It's just a character screwing with another character. And then by design, then screwing with the audience as well. Uh, and unless you think that there's something else going on with this cup scene, is that the cup of a carpenter, AJ? <laughs> yes, the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, I did get a very big Fisher King vibe there, especially because the person who evident, you know, ultimately finds the cup is is the fool, uh, right. and it it could just be their way of saying, Kevin, you're a fool, uh, and no more than that. Yeah, I, first of all, and out. I mean, come on, come <laughs> on. That's just, just it's just awesome. Yeah, between between you know my television viewing, if you just put and out as Patty in a room with Joe Morton as Papa Pope and just have them have a monologue off. <laughs> I mean, that would be just the greatest thing ever. That uh, would be fantastic. Now that I, she, do you think she's B six thirteen deep down? Is that what's happening here? Yeah. Okay. I just, I was just picturing Joe Morton giving, giving that speech. Kevin, there is a cup and you think you know this cup, but you do not know this cup. You cannot find this cup. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good Papa Pope. Uh, I've been practicing. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, Patty, the thing about this show is that Patty saying that you buy in because like I said, in a world where the great departure took place, something like that could actually be a credible course of action and it could be what she wants him to do. Uh, if you buy into the supernatural, uh, but they're not crossing that line just yet. Everything could go either way. Right. They're not, they're not going to answer these questions. They're going to let the mystery be. And if that's the overriding theme, then it's great that she could just be screwing with him. Or she could be telling him exactly what he has to do, but presenting it in a way that he's not going to believe her, which is just her way of twisting the knife a little bit. I mean, that's Patty. So I, I love the fact that, I mean, to me, I take it as she's just screwing with him because she can screw with him. Uh, it could also be that, you know, Kevin doesn't know what he's supposed to do. So therefore, Patty can't know what he's supposed to exactly do. exactly it, and I it think works that, on both 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 levels there yeah it does and and it just i love that it's kind of uh it also just is screwing with kevin is screwing with the audience in that respect too so it is really fun uh and you know we're we're kind of observers to this we have to just kind of watch we don't have extra information about what's happening we only really know what's been presented to us a character who's not like that though michael rolls up in this scene and Michael's given the guess it didn't work. Uh, you went to see Virgil. You don't remember. Uh, I know about this woman you see called Patty. Um, this guy's my grandfather. Uh, he can show you the way. I'm going to have to give you directions and I'm going to take you in there. Uh, and so Michael is there's more to Michael than meets the eye. We haven't really speculated a ton about this, that Michael had, had been in more than just we're praying together cahoots with Virgil or that Michael may know more 
than he's letting on. But that is absolutely the case here when Michael shows up with his bike. Um, and, you know, Michael kind of goes up to the, the trailer without Kevin and says some things to Virgil. Uh, and Virgil comes and says, Michael says you sleepwalk and you don't remember. We can go over it again. Uh, but I, I think this is interesting that Virgil and Michael have been in Kevin-related cahoots uh, and that maybe there's more to this than that. Um, I don't, there's a later scene, I think, where it's better to suss all this out. But uh, this, this Michael connection is, uh, is interesting because we had the scene earlier with the sleepwalking. Now Michael has, where Michael finds out about the sleepwalking. Now he's tracked Kevin down. He's taking him back to Virgil and trying to, you know, trying to basically put him in, I would say, harm's way. Maybe not knowing how harmful the harm will be. But I mean, is Michael totally in the dark? What Virgil is suggesting Kevin needs to do is Michael on board with this. I mean, it's not, this is not Christian theology per se that's going in play here. This is a, a pretty radical solution. Well, I mean, I think the bigger question is, is Michael completely innocent of the disappearance of the girls or is he involved in that somehow? Or is Virgil involved and Michael knows that he's involved? Maybe, maybe he confessed it to, to Michael that he's involved. I mean, where is that involvement? And is this a way, if Michael is somehow complicit in the girl's disappearance uh, through normal means, then maybe knowing about the pomp, the, Michael's palm print later on. Does he know about it? Does he not? Does does he find out about that? But knowing that he sleepwalks, does he think, well, maybe this is someone I can frame for for it? Um, is he kind of pushing towards that direction? Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that's kind of exactly the questions that I want to ask because I don't think we know that. I don't think that we have established fully uh, what Michael's role is here. And now that Michael is kind of not what we what he seemed on the surface, that he's not just a guy who goes out to pray with Virgil, that he's a secret keeper of some sort beyond just praying with Virgil, that he was keeping Kevin's secret about going to see Virgil. Uh, he was keeping Kevin's secret about have, uh, having psychotic issues. Uh, he was doing all those things. And so what other secrets is he keeping and why? Uh, and why was he keeping Kevin's secrets or, or did he keep them? Did he maybe tell John? A lot of people are speculating online that the Murphy men are probably in cahoots themselves. And I don't buy that, but, but I think that the door is open uh, to supposing things like that, uh, to, to look at uh, whether or not Michael is a little bit more uh, complicit uh, in the things that have happened. And so I think that that is uh, that's a fascinating kind of thing that we haven't really tackled in this podcast that I don't know that we'll know the full answer to until we get some more information. Uh, but I do think it's interesting that, that, that Michael is kind of eager and helpful to getting Kevin where Kevin is ultimately going to die. Uh, and Michael knows, I think what the ultimate end line is going to be. We have an argument and Michael's very uncomfortable the night later on that night when, when Kevin does show up, uh, Michael has been arguing with Virgil and something, you know, it's, it's a very weird situation when that door is opened. And we do know as well um, in this next scene, we find out, that Virgil is a pedophile, is a child molester, and probably molested John Murphy. Was that your read on that? Well, here's here's the thing. It could certainly be interpreted that way. Uh, it could be interpreted another way. Uh, the reason that we get reinforced uh, that it is probably true is because Patty comes right out and uses the word pedophile, whereas Virgil was using this kind of hemming and hawing, you know... Foul machinery. Foul, yeah, he was kind of dancing around it, but he didn't actually come out and say it. Um, Patty does, but 
if Patty is a ghost and knows these things, then okay, confirmation. If it's just the interpretation that Kevin had, and we're hearing it by proxy, um, that is the interpretation I had, but I don't know. I'm only assuming from what he was saying. Right. Uh, so uh, again, we're, what level of crazy do you accept? But you know, if you if you don't believe this guy, uh, when why should we believe this guy who said he was going to save him and then and then didn't inject him? Yeah, that's true. He's you talk about an unreliable narrator. He's so, as unreliable yeah. as he gets in that regard. I mean, all we know, all we know is that there was uh, an incident that that somehow precipitated. Uh, John shooting him and is that past abuse that makes a lot of sense certainly but then why would he wait so long to do it what was the triggering event that that caused him to to do his revenge right then and there uh it's an interesting question and we don't know the answer to that well uh, it, it does and i and only i only want to interrupt to say that it, looking at it through john's eyes you you get a little more information there john is mr there are no miracles and miracle and if John is is really, we don't know why John is so anti that, but we know that John went to jail and when he came home and saw what happened, he wasn't having any of it. And part of that could be that Virgil told him, I'm cured. I went on the spiritual quest and did battle with my adversary after you shot me. And I've, I've removed the demon that removed the adversary that was on me. And John doesn't want to buy any of that. Uh, and so John may be part of his kind of adversarial relationship with people who provide magical answers to things is that John is rejecting Virgil's own magical answer about the demons that cause Virgil to act with the foul machinery below the waist, which transgressed the laws of man. And so I think there's a possibility there that part of John's angst or anger against these sort of magical solutions may come from this very same magical solution. But you're right. We don't know that any of what Virgil is telling Kevin is true. Uh, we only know that something happened, that John did try to kill Virgil. We don't specifically know why. Virgil seems to suggest it's because I hurt him a long time ago. Uh, and so I think we, we, were, we've, we still don't even have confirmation, by the way, that Virgil is John's father. Uh, we don't know that John is his son, right? We just know that, uh, that John is the one who tried to kill him. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious to me that John is his son and not Erica's father, but it's entirely possible that John hurt Erica uh, and that by proxy hurt John or Virgil hurt Erica that by proxy hurt John and John was mad at Virgil for that. So we don't really specifically know. I think you're right. Uh, we only know that Virgil is suggesting that he might've been a pedophile, that Patty slash Kevin's subconscious seems to be on board with that. And that Virgil claims that this battle with his adversary when he almost died is what cured him. Uh, and so that he firmly believes that Kevin needs to do the same thing to get rid of his own darkness. Uh, and that, you know, she's not in you, she's on you. Uh, and you got to go to her turf and battle her. And he specifically tells him, you have to die, basically. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that that's all we know kind of how this has been laid out. This is what he laid out to him before when he did lay it out to him before he says Kevin took a rope and a brick and immediately walked into the woods, which to me means that Virgil probably doesn't live that far from the creek scene. Uh, maybe not, you know, several miles. I don't think Kevin's walking. I don't know. Uh, not with a cinder block, at least. Maybe he is, but I don't know. I think that uh, I think that we don't really know. We were only, again, again, an unreliable narrator telling us what Kevin did. Um, but this is this is interesting to kind of evaluate that. 
Kevin immediately took that information from Virgil last time and allegedly went and tried to kill himself. Yeah, and what certainly he wasn't in his right mind because you know, he was sleepwalking. So, um, to me, it, it's, it's interesting to see that that kind of very suggestible state that he's willing to buy in. And now when he's a, a little more lucid, although we know he's not entirely all there, uh, he's lucid enough to say, well, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and this is where Kevin gets angry and kind of storms off and throws the bike away. And then he goes to the woods and kind of faces down with Patty and shouts at her. And, you know, Patty gives it the good subconscious argument where she basically says, saying that the magical black man can help you is borderline racist. You know, I've been wanting to battle you. Let's do it. Uh, and that's where Kevin is really not that this is, if you want to talk about Kevin and Patty battling after Kevin dies or, or how it could cause Kevin's death. This is where Kevin is. No, that I have responsibilities. I'm a father. Uh, and you know, Patty's basically like, Joe will be better off without you. And this is really, I think if you want to say that this is Kevin's mental plane and this is his subconscious, I think you can really read that into this scene, uh, where he's arguing with himself and he's shouting down his better angels or his demons are coming up and saying things like Jill will be better off without you. Those are the kind of thoughts that can really doom a man. Uh, if he's in a position where he's capable or susceptible to being doomed. And I think that these are coming right to the surface here in this scene. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing in the scene that can be interpreted uh, as Patty with knowledge that he doesn't already have or right. Patty suggesting things that he doesn't hasn't already thought himself. And right. if she is a manifestation, well, he's thinking them now. Yeah, exactly. uh, it, it's, it's it's I think it's very clear that uh, this scene is a great uh, internal battle. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be an external battle. It's just an internal battle. Like which side is going to win? Is it going to be Kevin standing up to Patty's haranguing or is he, or is he just going to, uh, you know, cave and, and bring it, let's bring it. <laughs> yeah. And it's fascinating to read this scene in the context of where Patty ultimately ends up at the end of the episode where she's giving Kevin the, of course, uh, you know, I want you to drink it. And then Kevin is like, Oh, well, I'm, you know, my dad did what the voices told him to. And he said, that's how they stop. So I'm going to drink. And then Patty says, no, don't do it. So I think that's the manifestation of Patty being Kevin's subconscious and, you know, saying kind of, uh, you know, self-loathing or negative things to Kevin. When you read, when you read Patty as a manifestation of Kevin's psychosis or, uh, whatever, I think you can read that she's saying these things in this scene. Jill will be better off without you that of course a person who has a low self opinion or low self-worth as a father would think you know deep down in their subconscious and I think more than anything that that is what's coming to the surface at this scene and more than anything Kevin needs someone to help him sort these things out and just at this time is when Lori calls and you know we have your wife on the phone well not Nora Durst it's it's Lori and Lori is I think trying to do a job of keeping it together when she's worried about Tommy. But to me, AJ, she's wearing a lot on her face that says the opposite that says that, you know, she really is terrified about what might be going on with Tommy. Uh, we might be going to a dark place. Whereas my mind starts playing again when both of them are talking. Um, and then Kevin, Justin Thoreau, just doing great work in this scene, just really trying to present this uh, to Lori. Like I'm okay. It's fine. I'm fine. And clearly he is not okay. Uh, and this is a really bad deal for him, and he's very upset. I don't know. This is a this to me is a great scene. Having Amy Brenneman talking is is 
a, a great benefit to season two. Not that she wasn't great not talking, but this scene is just through the fence and everything that's kind of wrapped up in it. Um, just very, very, very good scene here. Uh, and I think that, I think really the kind of catalyst for Kevin being able to take control of what's happening to him and, and putting the events in motion, which will lead to Kevin taking the action uh, with clear, clearer eyes at the end of this episode, not in the middle of a sleepwalking dream. Yeah, I mean, the, the physical barrier representing the, the, the distance between them and, and the, the barrier that has built up between them over the last several years since she left and joined the cult, I mean, is, is, is apparent. Uh, that, you know, the, the, the clever little nod, like, oh, so we're talking now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, he's, again, uh, Kevin is trying so hard to present, I'm, I'm sane, I'm normal, I'm okay, that he doesn't take the time to notice that she's totally freaked out herself and that which is, is tommy okay yeah oh, everything's fine I, I just didn't know where he was it's, it's all good well like you said she's wearing that on her sleeve but he can't see it because he's too busy working on trying to make himself not apparent and she can't see that he's completely bonkers at this point either so <laughs> it's it, i'll just leave because everything's right with you and everything's okay and i'll just go and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just leave i'm sorry so it was it was a really nice scene of two people who are in the same place um but but miles apart at the same time. Yeah. I think that's a, a really eloquent way of putting it. And I think that I, like I said, I think that as you're saying, um, she's not fine either. And I think she's trying to present that to Kevin, of course, but I think her mere presence there under, under, undermines that kind of premise. Uh, she's not fine. She's terrified of something. I think you're right. I think next week is a good time for us to find out a little bit more about what she's terrified about. Uh, I'm eager to do that because where we left Tommy, he was okay with it. Uh, we, we get another scene uh, pretty quickly here uh, in just a moment with Kevin and Lori again, uh, and we'll, we'll come right back to this. But, um, but yeah, Kevin is, unfortunately ends up in a situation where his quest to remove the shackles from himself literally uh, puts him in a position where he's probably getting them more likely placed on himself literally uh, by getting his palm print taken. We do have a feeling, I think, that that palm print is going to come back and place him at the scene. And he's going to be in a really tough spot here with all of that. He knows he's caught. Uh, I don't know. Do you think that subconsciously he wanted to get caught? Because Patty in this next scene kind of says, I only felt free when I killed myself is ultimately what she summarizes that as. And it's almost like Kevin is so guilty about, you know, covering some element of this up and having been not there emotionally, mentally, to give any more information and leaving that palm print, he almost seems like he wants to be caught. He sees people, you know, walking in with the prints and he just goes and does it all anyway. I don't know. This is, this is a bad deal for Kevin. And I'm wondering if you have any take on how much he, he was kind of choosing to put himself in this position versus how much he just ended up there. He does try to not print the, the correct hand. So I think that that's, that's part of proving that maybe he doesn't want any part of this. Well, yeah, on the one hand, yeah. Uh, well, on, on the, the other hand, hand. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, I'm good sometimes, even <laughs> when I'm not trying to. Uh, no, uh, but I think, is is it that he put the wrong hand down to intentionally try and and, and avoid it? Or did he put that hand out to, to uh, say, well, I don't know which hand you're looking for because I didn't leave the palm print. <laughs> so why would I know which hand I'm supposed to put? <laughs> you know, it, it, how, how, how deeply are we going to read into that action? Or is he just completely just going through the motions there? Um, 
because you know to me i don't think he went there to get caught because he did seem surprised when when uh john brought up the flyer and that he was asking people to come down to give handprints so he did he did seem to not know about that so i don't know that he was uh intentionally turning himself in in some sort of you know Secondhand way. <laughs> Secondhand way. Oh my gosh, here we go again. I gotta hand <laughs> but, it to you, Jake. You're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, so he gets fingered. Uh no. Uh <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't I don't know that he I think he found himself trapped. I, I think he found himself trapped, which is kind of where he is all 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 episode. He, yeah. he finds himself trapped uh literally with the handcuffs at the beginning of the episode and not knowing where the key is and uh, hesitating to go in there like oh john's not here okay maybe i'll try to go somewhere else uh i don't think it was intentional on his part to turn himself in uh i don't even think after he realized that was going on that he was you know he just knew at that point he was caught because as soon as he says hey you want to you want to do it like how can he not (laughs) at that point yeah i mean they're really because if he runs then he looks more guilty and i think you know, he's, he's got a little bit of time here. We, uh, you know, we had some questions. One from, uh, Bob Mahoshik wanted to know was, what was Virgil's motivation for killing Kevin? Uh, is this a cover up? Because, you know, Virgil's responsible for the girls. And we also had a question, uh, you know, that, that maybe, that maybe Kevin was involved. Uh, this was from T. Scott Youngblood. He wanted to know, was Kevin killed? Uh, because his handprint was matched. And was that in some way to, you know, Virgil kind of, knowing that it matched uh, that this is inventing stuff that didn't occur on screen. Uh, maybe Virgil was trying to make something up to John. I don't think the palm print will have matched that quickly. I think we're going to get an answer on it very quickly in the next episode or two, but I don't think it matches uh, in this, in this same day enough that Kevin is killed ultimately for his handprint matching. I have seen that speculated in other places online. I just wanted to make sure you and I were on the same page that Kevin's death and, uh, Virgil not using the syringe doesn't have anything to do with Kevin's handprint being taken by John here. Uh, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Uh, it's not how I saw the episode, but thinking about it, I mean, they had this high tech uh, kind scanner. of high tech scanner. Yeah. I mean, it, it, were they just printing it out to fax it somewhere or send it somewhere? Or, you know, was the matching software right there? Cause if the matching software is right there, then obviously it wasn't a match because the, the bells and sirens didn't go off. You know, I thought that's what was going to happen. It was like, whoop, 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 whoop. Me too, me too. By the time he got to the car. So clearly it is going to take some time. Now, is that several hours? Um, it, it's certainly possible because Kevin then goes, you know, and has this little conversation in the, in the hotel room after this. Now in that time, is that enough time for, maybe a phone call to come to John and say, we got a match, you know, Michael to overhear it and then go visit Virgil. Um, yeah, I think there might be. So uh, we didn't see it. There's nothing in the show that points to that, but there's also, I think it's a, I think it's a reasonable, uh, theory to explore though. I'm not buying into it. Yeah, me neither. And, and I, I agree with you. I think that, I think that it's, if, if the print had matched and they were doing the matching on site, we would have kind of quickly found out. And, you know, the fact that it didn't do that tells me that it probably happens offsite. Um, it is interesting because Kevin goes home and it's night at that point. Uh, the Murphys live next door. It's not like John's looking for Kevin. It's not like the people are out scouring the streets wondering where he is when in fact he's right next door. So I think that that is more proof. I think that the, the print doesn't go through right away because we in this next scene, 
see Kevin at home on the steps talking to Jill. Kevin kind of indicating all he wants as a family. Jill saying, get your shit together, basically. And that sort of motivates Kevin to go see Lori outside of town. And then when he does, um, that's when we get this great scene where we, we have, I think, Lori pretty directly articulating uh, the man of science argument. The, you know, what you have can be medicated. It can be explained genetically. It can be explained uh, through science. And it's in my bailiwick. It's in my field. I understand how this sort of thing works. Let me tell you that Patty's not real. Anything that she's saying to you, she's saying because I told you. I told you about Neil. And Kevin says, I don't remember. And Lori says, well, maybe you should have listened to me better. But clearly, if she spoke, it, it probably landed somewhere, even if only in Kevin's subconscious and that is, I think, what we're really seeing kind of come to bear here. And so she all, she really does a good job of articulating that side of the argument. She talks about how I told you about these things. Um, and then that's when she gets this statement that we've mentioned on this podcast here, where she says, when the mind's in emotional distress, it will grasp at any context that makes it feel better. We are all susceptible to false belief. Tommy and I did this. People believed it and brains would sooner embrace magic than deal with fear and abandonment and guilt. And I, I mean, I joined a cult for crying out loud. So I think she's really kind of directly making almost a mission statement of this show, of this show's kind of man of science argument, if you will, or woman of science argument that these things can happen uh, and that there's a scientific explanation for all of it. It's not supernatural. It's easier for us to, you know, grasp at sky cake and look for, spiritual solutions to things when we don't know the answers to these mysteries, but a lot of them, you know, all of them can probably be explained scientifically. And I'm, I'm interested, uh, you know, if you have any thoughts on this, there is one other thing from this scene that is somewhat less related that I wanted to hit, but I want to get your thoughts on her sort of mission statement there and her firmly joining the, the, the team, the man of science team here. Well, yeah, like I said, being that this is a fictional universe where, where people disappear, that changes the game a little bit. But her argument, I mean, it, it's not only easier for people to buy into these wacky beliefs, we're also, we've evolved to do it. I mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Shermer's work. No. On, yeah, uh, he uh, wrote a book called The Believing Brain, and he's, he's very into this kind of, this, you know, why people believe what they believe, why we believe in ghosts, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and basically, there are two types of errors that people can make. This type one error, type two error. Uh, I hope I'm getting this right, but basically, it's like if when we were like uh, living in 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 uh, primitive times, and there was a rustle in the leaves. Now, it could just be the wind, or it could be a wild animal trying to eat us. Now, we can make the mistake and think it's the wind when it's actually a wild animal. And if we do that, what's going to happen? We're going to die. The wild animal's going to eat us. Yeah, yes. exactly. So it actually is beneficial for evolutionary purposes to believe it's a wild animal when it's the wind. Even though we because, can't see the wild animal. Right, because that's safer. Right. Because at least this way, if we're wrong, if, if we make that type of mistake, well, we live to fight another day. And... The people who made that type of mistake were the ones who survived more, you know, at a higher proportion. And evolution takes place over time. And today, we're we are the descendants of the people who are willing to think it's the the tiger when it's the wind. So we do, uh, as people grasp at the things that are maybe not evidentiary, but 
are the ones that keep us safer. Um, so I'm totally all in with, with this feeling that wh- wh- whatever it is, I mean, that's part of why cults are able to, to work so well and, and why, why religion has such a strong hold on some people. Um, you know, faith is because there is no evidence in faith. That faith is not evidence. So, uh, our brains are built to, to grasp on to, to faith. And that's why I, I, I totally buy into what Laurie's saying. That it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that it's not, uh, you know, a tiger in the bush. It doesn't mean that Patty isn't actually there. It just means that we're predisposed to believe that Patty is there. See, and what you're doing is taking Pascal's wager, right? Which is more of a logical thing. Which is saying like, oh, if you can't prove that there's a God or not, why not just believe because your life will be better uh, for having some kind of thing. And you're putting a scientific explanation to it, uh, which is that, you know, evolution kind of dictates that we should believe in this. So there is this kind of weird, hazy area where you can look at a, a similar kind of um, evaluation or decision point. And you can say, I'm going to make this decision from an evolutionary standpoint and just bet the safer thing from my own physical safety. Or I'm going to do it because, you know, it, hey, if, if it doesn't matter one way or the other, if I believe in God, I'm just going to go ahead and believe just in, on, on the chance that it's right. Uh, and then, you know, eternally, spiritually, uh, I'll be rewarded for my magical belief. So I do think that that's fascinating, uh, that you're right, that Lori says the brain would sooner embrace magic, that that it isn't just a uh, kind of a spiritual thing, that there may in fact be a scientific evolutionary explanation for this. Um, right. And, and the flip side of that is, though, however, that, you know, some people are willing to take that at face value and then just stick to the belief that, you know, the tiger's in the bush when we have the technology today to shine a flashlight on right. and, have, and have a gun at the ready right. to you know, put a giant wall between. There's ways to find out if, in fact, we are correct. Uh, so I think the to me, the, the wiser course of action is to then pursue the evidence and see if there's a tiger in the bush. But um, there's a reason why we're so quick to assume that the tiger is in the bush. I think that's kind of there. The other, the other half of this is, is for me, what I find a great, this show, I love this show about it is that it really comes down to free will in, in many ways. Um, you know, when she says, you know, there is no Patty, there's only you. I mean, do we, does Kevin have a choice to ignore Patty? Or, you know, or is he forced to do what she says because he's hearing her and he, he has no, no way out of it? Is there free will in that? I, I think, you know, there's a movie, one of my favorite movies is uh, Donnie Darko, sure. which is all about uh, this concept of is there free will or do we have a choice in our actions? And it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a great film, but there's, there's so much stuff that happens in that, in that movie where characters are, are, are their actions are dictated simply by the actions of others uh, or their perception of the actions of others uh, and I think that applies here I mean it's 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 fascinating to me how what Kevin does is not so much dictated by his own choice in it's kind of like if he doesn't hear this from Laurie does he make the choice that he makes if 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 he doesn't, if Nora doesn't leave, does he make this choice? If his conversation with Jill goes a different way, if she doesn't say to him, you know, yeah, that's two families, buddy. <laughs> you know, does, does that push him in the direction? How much, how much choice does he really have? Yeah, it's true. And, and this is all complicated by the fact that some of it is, uh, is maybe a not, he, he's sleepwalking. He goes away. And so he's not even present in his mind when he, when he's making active choices. 
And so some of that is, is, is interesting because it isn't free will versus determinism or it isn't that his actions are, are plotted out for him. He probably has some choice in almost all that he does, but on some level, there is also some element of him that does go away and that does remove any sort of active present kind of choice that's made. And that's the really difficult position that Kevin see, that Kevin finds himself in. And in return, you know, in response to that, he's taking some actions, right? Prophylactic actions or just protective actions. He's handcuffing himself to a bed. He is bringing glory to Jill and, you know, not in so many words saying like, take care of our daughter while I go figure this out. So he's trying to kind of plan for the future and plan ahead for things that he may not be in control of. And so I think it's fascinating that he even knows that he's not always in the position to make his own decisions the way he would like to make them. And so that's kind of what we're faced off with. One other thing before we move on from this Kevin and Lori scene in the hotel, Lori has a pause here, which I think may prove to be uh, somewhat relevant when she's telling the story about Tommy. She basically says like Tommy and I used it. We gave these people something. We had a fight, she says, and Tommy said that he could. And then she trails off. And so it isn't clear where they left off. I think we are going to find that out. But I think that, you know, it's possible that Tommy started to believe what he was selling to, you know, to drink his own Kool-Aid a little bit. Uh, And I think that that may be why she thinks Tommy ended up in Miracle. Um, I think there's something that Lori's not telling Kevin about her fight with Tommy very clearly. You and I talked about this when she's kind of upset at the gate. She's hiding something. I think in this scene that comes a little bit to the surface as well. And I, I, I mean, hopefully, you know, we're going to see precisely where this kind of rift originated. I don't think we're going to pick this up and Tommy's going to just be somewhere else. I think we are going to do what we did before, which is go back in time a little bit to see what created the rift between Tommy and Lori uh, and move on from there. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot that uh, she's not telling. Kevin, right. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry about the dog. Yeah, well, I'm sorry about the bait. Oh, never mind. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah that, <laughs> There's that a lot. Was, that, that was hilarious to me. Right. Kevin <laughs> finds the time to apologize for the dog. And Laurie's just like, yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot about that dog thing. Yeah. Oh, really yeah. Um, I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty clear that uh, Tommy buying the Kool-Aid it makes a lot of sense. Uh Holy Tommy, I think we haven't seen the last of, of him. And it, it totally makes sense that, you know, again, he, he's going to see the tiger in, in the bush. He's, he's going to see it and he's going to uh, just go down that road. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, we get we get Nora on the phone here with Kevin. And I think that's sort of what he kind of gets into. We talked about this. Will you believe me and know she is gone? If I look in the eye and I tell you, I can get rid of her. It doesn't matter how I'm going to do it. Doesn't matter you know where the tiger is or what I'm saying about the tiger. Will you believe me when I tell you it's not there? It doesn't matter how I figure it out. It doesn't matter how I get rid of it. And Nora, you know, she says, yes, she would like that. And this is a, to me, this is a, in light of what happens with Kevin, this is a really kind of semi-tragic scene here because I don't, I really don't want this to be the last conversation. I don't want my girl Nora Durst to be left hanging like this. <laughs> Jay. This, would, this would break my heart. Yeah, and 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 the thing that breaks your heart about it is that you believe her. You right. believe that you believe that she's saying, "Yeah, if if you tell me, I will believe you," because you haven't lied to me. <laughs> you, he hasn't. He may have kept kept Patty a secret for a while, but 
he still was willing to go and say, yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing Patty when that's absolutely batshit crazy. Right. <laughs> but he still trusts her enough to, to tell her that. And, and I think she knew it was like, I think she, she, uh, on some level, she knew that he was, he was in that way. So it, Nora is totally honest and sincere in my opinion. And it would be a tragedy if once again, someone, that she cares for is taken away from her without any any rhyme or reason without her control and just just at the drop of a hat yeah this is i think our philly had asked us a question did nora ditch does nora ditching kevin seem genuine to the character we know uh, as his ride or die and does it detract from her authenticity and i think more than anything what you just said is is where it rings true for me is that what is authentic for her is that she has lost a lot. And I think that the possibility that she feels she may be some kind of in, in, in some kind of way influencing Kevin here, that she may be responsible for some of the things that are happening to him. She doesn't want to lose Kevin. She doesn't want to run away from Kevin. She wants it all to be right. And I think she truly does believe that. I think Carrie Coon in the limited time she's given on this episode really does a bang up job of conveying that, that conflict uh, and that she's facing here. And it's really tough because you know, Jill is kind of all alone. It's a really difficult position. Like I said, most awkward babysitter ever. Uh, the mom that, you know, basically almost got her killed. Uh, and, and then Kevin is, is gone. Kevin drives his truck away and he's off to see the wizard. And this is no good because, as we said, Michael's there. He's really looking troubled. And there's something not right about what's going on. My first read on that scene is that Virgil had been doing, you know, what does he say? Uh, foul something with his foul machinery below the waist, transgressing the laws of man. But I think once I know what happened and once I see Michael come back, it seems clear to me that Michael knew some element of this plan. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Because there's no other reason for him to stick around. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and exactly. plus his reaction when he walked in was not, Oh my God, Virgil. <laughs> <laughs> right. Grandpa, what happened? No. Just like, Oh, it's well. like, oh, yeah, you you went through it. You went through with it. You did what you said you were going to do. And I think Michael was probably trying to talk Virgil out of that, which I think lends some credence to the belief that Virgil felt like he had to kill himself to be Kevin's guide, that Kevin had either what Virgil describes as a very powerful adversary or someone looking out for him. I think we can't go through this without mentioning that we had the Job story with Matt uh, kind of come to the forefront in the previous episode in that same Job story. Satan is often referred to as the adversary. Uh, it is a very kind of satanic connection to use the term, the adversary. Uh, and that is not a term on accident. Um, that's a very specifically chosen term to kind of resonate on that level. And so I think Virgil truly believes that something very powerful is in play with Kevin more powerful, even than his own adversary, we had question from Brendan Fitzpatrick who said, who do we think Virgil's adversary was? Or who do we think uh, Kevin Sr.'s uh, adversary was? Or maybe do other characters have adversaries? I think this it's this interesting concept. And yet again, we have to consider whether there's a supernatural explanation that some adversary is sitting on top of these characters and causing them to act in negative ways. Or if their adversary is truly scientific and internal and some people's brain chemistry just causes them to behave in a certain way. And I think that that Virgil clearly is cutting on the side of evil is real and that you need my help. And I think when we see Michael talking to him here, I think that Virgil cutting on that side comes to bear here because I think that Michael knew, it seems to me, that Virgil was going to kill himself, as you said. So 
you know, Virgil cooks the poison here uh, and tells Kevin it's going to it's going to shut you down like a heroin overdose. As I said, I think there's a possibility uh, to me, based on what this show does, like a high likelihood that this is not a true poison, that it's something more in the lines of what they call uh, an ethogen or I'm sorry, an ethogen uh, and an ethogen. And that is something that helps you generate the divine within. It's a spiritual substance. It's like using LSD or mushrooms or peyote or any of those things. Uh, mescaline, for example, to take you on a spiritual quest and to give you that kind of clarity. I personally believe that that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, I think it's in keeping with the cause of the show. We find out that Edward, who lives on the pillar, also went through this treatment. Uh, and he's a, quote, living, breathing success story. AJ, is that what success looks like to you? Yes, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all just want to live in a tower and never shower? And have you know, it's, it's kind of like you, you, it's in terms of uh, Virgil's sales technique, that probably wasn't the greatest uh, <laughs> comp you wanted to give. Uh, uh, but uh, on the flip side, this is the only other person who kind of saw Patty, so maybe that gave <laughs> Kevin some sort of, uh, like, oh, well, no wonder he saw Patty. Uh, he, he's been through this. So maybe right. maybe the ones in Virgil saw this, too. So maybe the people who've been through this uh, can understand what I'm going through, and maybe maybe we're special. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and Kevin doesn't want to die. I mean, this is very clear. He says, sort of uh, with a little bit of confidence to Virgil here, although it's uh, with a lot of fear as well. I don't want to die. He makes it clear. And Virgil says, no, no, life is precious. Interesting words from a man who is going to kill himself uh, within about two minutes of uttering those words. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that life is not so precious for Virgil in that respect, I guess. But yeah, it, it's tough. Uh, then Patty shows up, of course. And Patty says, don't, you know, don't drink it uh, or drink it. Go ahead. Of course, I want you to drink it. And I think that that might be the reverse psychology that she's used to Kevin ignoring her, not doing what she says, thinking that she's trying to lead him down the wrong path. So when she says drink it, he, she thinks he won't. And I think this to me is good evidence of Patty being representation of Kevin's self-conscious that ultimately or sorry, subconscious that ultimately um He's he's not really wanting to to go through with this. He, he he doesn't know a better solution. He has a lot of trepidation about it, and I think that manifests ultimately with Patty at the end screaming, "No, Kevin, you know, don't do it." Uh, and it it doesn't play out that way. Uh, Kevin cites Kevin Senior in this kind of um, in this kind of scene or this kind of way here, and says he just did what the voices told him to do, and they stop. So. There we go. Uh, I don't know. Um, this is bad. This is bad. Kevin goes into the shock. He's uh, he's convulsing. Uh, not not no bueno, as I like to say. This is not not a pleasant scene to watch. Uh, very difficult. Um, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on this that we haven't articulated uh, that come to bear here as we're kind of breaking down the scene on the micro level? No, not really. I think uh, I think we we've gone over it, and until we know what Kevin's ultimate fate is, I, I don't think we'll know uh, exactly what what everything meant. And I, I think it's one of those things where we'll look back on this and maybe see some more things and read into it. I mean, that's kind of what we do <laughs> as humans. We read into things. We start looking for clues. We're pattern, pattern recognition machines. And so we're, we're, we're looking for those things, uh, you know, those parallels with stories that we already know uh, for clues as to what might happen next. And in the real world, uh, it's a great way to uh, kind of navigate 
the perils of life, but in, in, in fiction, we're, we're subject to the whims of the writers <laughs> and whether or not they are throwing all these biblical clues in there with, you know, the, a name like Michael is, has a lot of, of weight to it. And, and a name like Virgil has weight to it. And, you know, heck, you know, I, from episode one, I've been noticing that, uh, you know, there's, there's a Lily and there's an Evie and those are the daughters and those are the wives of Adam and like Lilith and Eve and, Oh my gosh, my brain is spinning. Maybe I shouldn't look too much into this. Maybe I should just, uh, you know, see what's there and take it for what it's worth and, uh, and, and hope for the best. You're getting Lindelof. AJ. I'm getting Lindelof. You're going down the rabbit hole. We can't, we can't do this. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by, uh, by just a lot of what's going on here with, because uh, you're right. We, of course, this is a show that wants you to read into things, but also wants you to read to, in, into things with no real point. Uh, I mean, seriously, seriously, for, for the, if, if he hadn't gotten the phone call, I would have thought that, that Laurie was a, a, a hallucination as well. Yeah, because, it's entirely because, possible, right? Yeah, Absolutely. so when Nora leaves, like, oh, I lost a wife, I better get a wife. I better, like, I better make one up out of thin air here. And, yeah. you know, Patty's all dressed in white, and Laura's all dressed in dark clothing, and, like, is, is, is you know, you could read so much into it. it it's, it's a sign of a really well-produced show that even if half of these things are unintentional, we're going to look and, and try and read into it. And I think that's what's so, so fun about a show like this, that the quality is there, that there is a story. And I, 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 I buy, certainly on this show, I, I, I have full faith that they know where they're going, at least as far as this season goes. Uh, and, and looking for clues is, is probably a fool's errand. Uh, it's probably like going to Cairo and, and searching for that uh, artifact. But nevertheless, uh, we can't help ourselves. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's, I mean, we can, we, you know, you can dive into these things. Uh, we can't help ourselves. I mean, people are going nuts about the 1972 National Geographic. Never has one single episode of a magazine produced more television content, uh, I guess, than uh, in terms of Easter eggs than this 1972 National Geographic magazine, the, the taxidermied marsupial or whatever that is in Virgil's home. There's a picture of it in the magazine. There's connections to Cairo and the cup. There's all of that. But ultimately, I think it could be signifying nothing. It could be just these connections. I do think that we can read in a little bit more to the Virgil and Michael thing. I think that for me, I think that Virgil was probably involved in the disappearance of the three girls. I think that that's the most likely explanation at this point, that perhaps he killed himself to kind of put a bow on that story. It's possible that he, that Michael was involved too. Maybe Evie was even involved. This whole thing could have been cooked up to make it seem like a departure. So people would believe about, uh, you know, when the girls returned that it was a miracle. I mean, we've seen profiteering going on in place with these miracles. I think there's a lot of these possibilities here that Kevin maybe in fact even witnessed, uh, what happened with the girls that, you know, if he was sleepwalking or maybe he said he was along for the ride, we don't know. We don't know to what extent Michael and Virgil might see Kevin as a loose end if they were involved. I think all of those things are questions that we rightfully, from a narrative standpoint, not from a theory standpoint, but just from a narrative standpoint, I think we should be asking ourselves these questions. Like I said, I do think we're going to get to see what Kevin might have seen when he was trying to kill himself there. I think there's a possibility that Virgil was definitely involved, that maybe even Michael was involved, and that we're, we're going to see some of these things um, that, that come to play. There's actually, uh, somebody has a much deeper theory about what they think every blow by blow going to be 
or is going to be. That's from Remount King's Troop on Reddit. Uh, worth checking out because I don't know if that their version of this theory will come true, but I think a lot of people are theorizing that Virgil and Michael even might have been involved in the disappearance of these girls. And I think you can also read a lot of what's going on in this last scene and what happens with Michael through that lens as well. Yeah, I, I think certainly I, I don't dispute that they could have been involved. It makes a lot of sense. They're certainly pointing in that direction, uh, or at least the evidence is is, is there. Um, but again, maybe maybe we're just seeing ghosts just like Kevin is, and that's what's so great about the show. It's it it's at its heart, the show is a mystery. Uh, it says it right there in the theme song. Uh, but there are levels of mystery. And in terms of what happened to the girls, I think that's a mystery that we can't let be. And I think that that's how you wrap up season two is at least explain that mystery, um, which would lend itself to not being a supernatural thing. Uh, but that still doesn't discount the supernatural potential of the first disappearance. So I, I think it's, it's great that not everything has to be painted with the same brush. Uh, and we tend to do that in shows, uh, and, and say, well, if this is a show about this and this show is about this. And I, I think what's so great about this show is that it's not trying to be anything other than just a story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and letting us kind of interpret how we wish or, or bring what we bring with us uh, to the table, uh, to this, to this, you know, series to see it through the lenses that we choose. And I think that's part of the reason possibly why, the show is is less, you know, it doesn't do as well in the ratings uh, as it probably could because it is asking a lot of the viewers uh, and it is not necessarily providing the most tight kind of, oh, this is a moral, you know, the moral of this story is don't cook methamphetamine. Like it's not <laughs> providing like a very clear path uh, that you can interpret and say, I know what I was supposed to think about this. Tom Brady told Peter King, I think it was, a couple of weeks ago that he didn't like the movie No Country for Old Men because he didn't think it had a point. Uh, and to me, that is the epitome or that really summarizes why I can't stand Tom Brady. But I think it's fascinating that people need that from their from their pop culture, from some people do, uh, from what they're you know, they're being done. Uh, our Philly asked us a great question, AJ, that I'd like to get your opinion on. Sure. Which is what's the biggest lesson the leftovers can give to the other heavy hitters on TV? Why does it have such faith in its audience? And I think more than anything, the leftovers can be distinguished from a lot of other shows on TV for all the reasons that you were just stating that uh, this show acts in certain ways. I'm wondering if you feel like this is a outlier in a positive way. Are there lessons that we can take from the leftovers or the things the show can do better? Are you to totally content with the ride and just going on it? Because the ratings are low. Uh, there's a lot of concern that HBO might not renew the show. There's less than a million people watching it every week. It is up against The Walking Dead, so it's difficult. Um, I don't want the, personally, I don't want The Leftovers to be any different. And I, I think that if more shows were like The Leftovers, I would like more shows a lot better. Uh, but I'm curious as to what your take is on where The Leftovers fits in the, the general TV landscape. Uh, I, I think it, it's it's a very uh, unfortunately it's it's only going to cater to a, a niche audience uh, and people are people tend to not want to watch TV that makes them work so hard uh, whereas I, I gravitate toward shows like that uh, but it, the thing you need is you need to have the confidence that 
it's not building up to this one big reveal uh, that you're going to laugh at at the end and, and say, why did I waste my time? I think it's really hard to do that. Um, the way you do that is through characters. And the way you do that is through making the people who are on the screen be people that you care about what they're doing uh, and, and what happens to them rather than the plot. I think you know the, the show Sensate is a perfect example of that where it, it's a show where yeah, there's a what's going on and what, what is the reasons behind all of these people being interconnected on that show. And yet I could care less what the ultimate answer is because I just find the performances and, and the characters so amazing that I'm willing to go along for the ride and I don't care anything about the overarching plot. And I think The Leftovers is a show like that as well. It's like, it, I'm fine with them never answering anything about what happened and why these people disappeared. I think this season they kind of have to answer it for Evie uh, and the girls a little bit simply because it's, it seems to be more of, a, of, a, of an investigation and, yes. and the characters are pursuing it. So if they just say, oh, we'll never know in that case, then you failed the audience. But in terms of you know, the grand scheme of things, I mean, stuff happens in the real world all the time that doesn't have an answer. It doesn't mean you can't ask the questions. Uh, just don't, don't answer it if you're going to come up with a lame answer. And I think I trust the show not to come up with a lame answer. Um, and so I'm willing to watch it. And I think shows have to decide which side of that fence they're on. If you're going to be a big event show where, you know, the season finale is going to be, and the murderer is, <laughs> then it has to make sense and all the pieces have to fit together. Right. But if it's just, Hey, this thing happened and we, we want to know why, but that's not the focus of the show. The focus isn't about interrogations and finding clues and everything. It's just, it's just life. Uh, I, I like the slice of life stuff. And, it, you know, some of my favorite movies are movies where, you know, you pick up, a, you know, pick up uh, a bunch of characters at this point of their life and you leave them at this point of their life. And what happens to them is what happens to them. Uh, as long as the, you're not focusing on the mystery and, and saying, what, well, you know, why are they on the island and lost? What is the island? <laughs> you know, who is Jacob? Who is this man in black? Who is the smoke monster? There were a lot of questions there that kind of were the point of the show in terms of, of emphasis. Uh, and they got away from that on Lost and dealt more with the characters. And that's why I was satisfied by the ending. But I think in, they made the mistake in the first few episodes of kind of teasing it as the end. We're going to answer these questions. Yeah. Um, this is a show where the, the, they've learned from their mistake. Uh, and said, we're not answering it. We're, we're just not. Uh, and that doesn't mean you, you can get away with never answering anything. But uh, I'm willing to let a show... I, I think the people who don't like this show are the types of people who need them to answer that question and say, oh, you know, it's like the people are upset with The Walking Dead because, well, is, he, is Glenn dead? You didn't tell us for two weeks. And like, yeah. I was like, I, and yes, I'm a little frustrated with the pacing because we're only getting eight episodes. But that's not, I mean... Okay, if they never went back to it, I'd be fine with it. There's a lot like, of Tom Brady's out there, AJ. A lot yeah, of people need to need to see the point and are not content to listen to the mission statement of season two of this show, which is just let the mystery be and and just kind of establish that uh, from the start. And yeah, the there are a lot of I mean we we encounter so many questions in our daily lives, and almost almost exclusively the most 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 important ones are the ones that we can't answer, uh, and that you know there's a lot of uh, living in the not answering. That goes on. Uh, there's a lot of worshiping. There's a lot of daily routine. There's a lot of everything that goes on in service of these questions that we don't know the answer to. 
and that we can't answer. So we have to take on faith. Uh, and but yet again, so much of what we do is influenced by scientific choice, by evolutionary choice, by decisions that are hardwired into our brains. And there is that fascinating kind of overlap. And so, yeah, this is a show where the we have a great departure, which will not be explained, but we have a, a mini departure of three girls, which is being presented in a way that probably will be explained. I don't think the scene of the girls running through the forest was for nothing. I don't see think the scene of uh, Erica and Evie arguing in sign language, the fact that uh, Erica was about to leave and wasn't sure about Evie um, is for nothing. I don't think that a lot of these scenes that we've seen that we haven't necessarily explained, like the girls riding in the car without music, I don't think that these were for nothing. And I think at the end of the day, when we watch this second season of The Leftovers again, knowing everything that's come before, I think we're going to see just a phenomenal overall season of television, both in the mini-episode level and in the way that they, they balance this Let's answer some questions, but not answer the bigger ones. Let's separate them into two piles. Let's, uh, let's introduce things which influence some of the answers that we're going to give, but also put the other ones into jeopardy. It's just a phenomenal show about the way that we lens the world, the way that we see things, the way that we respond to tragedies, the way that we respond to interpersonal in incidents, bringing things to the table that we're not even sharing with the other people. It's just a phenomenal show. It's hitting it out of the park. Uh, so as far as lessons for other shows go, I'd say try to be like The Leftovers, but I don't think that other shows should try that because I think that The Leftovers is, is succeeding on such a high plane that I think it would be it's very difficult for other shows to pull off this sort of acrobatic work. And, and it's more of a mark in favor of The Leftovers than anything else. I'm just fascinated and floored by everything that I've seen. I'm excited for what's to come. Very thankful uh, that you joined us today to talk about all this, AJ, because this is a this is a signpost episode. Like we're going we're going to go in a, a direction from here. Which direction we go, it's yet to be known, but we're clearly uh, going down a path. And I think this is fascinating to kind of take a step back and say, okay, what paths are available to us? And let's look into those bushes and let's see: is it the wind or is it a tiger? Uh, and the show's going to tell us, I think, and that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I thank you for having me on. I mean, I'm sorry that Josh couldn't be here for it, but uh, you were a most powerful adversary, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I hope this wasn't adversarial, AJ. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> I think we, the two of us are doing battle against uh, this show, which is causing so many people to ask so many questions, in, in, in a, in, you know, in, 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 and rightfully so, because it is, uh, it's really fantastic uh, and really delivering. We're going to continue this conversation at Post Show Recaps on our show page for this episode there. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments for this episode. I don't really have a hashtag. AJ, did you have a hashtag in mind? We don't need a hashtag for people to tweet at us, but if, well, if you I know. think we just came up with it in the, in that last little bit, it's wind or tiger, wind or tiger. Perfect. Yeah. So if you got to the end of this episode and you want to let us know that feel free to tweet us with the hashtag wind or tiger, I'm at AC Mazzaro on Twitter. AJ is at AJ Mass. And you can also, please, I encourage you, uh, as someone who has read them, buy AJ's books and read them. Uh, they're, you know, interesting, even if you're not into sports or fantasy sports. Uh, the fantasy sports book does show you how group dynamics can really manifest in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and the mascot book, uh, yes, it's hot in here. So many great stories from AJ's work as a mascot and about mascots in general. And I think you can, uh, I think you can learn a lot from that book about why we choose to bring certain things into certain events, uh, and the effect that they have on them. So 
definitely recommend you, hit, you, you know, check those books out. And if you're a fan of the show, The 100, AJ and Joe have started that podcast. So be on the lookout on their Twitters for that uh, because they will uh, be sharing and talking about that show. I watched the first episode, AJ. I'm not fully on board, so I'm going to have to watch some more to see what I think. I, I, I say it's a three-episode three buy-in. If, okay. if, if you're not, I, I, get, I get it entirely. End of episode three, if you're not sold, please, by all means, I, I grant you your release. But give it to the end of episode three. I, for you, AJ, I will do that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys again uh, for everything you do, checking us out here at Post Show Recaps. Uh, and subscribe to our Leftovers feed, postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes. The more subscriptions we get to this podcast, the higher up the charts we get on iTunes, the more people then can hear our show and join in the conversation and ask us great questions like the ones we got today. So thanks, everyone, for listening and take care. Baby.